Welcome to the Turning Point Podcast. I am your host, Marita Spada. If you are already a fan of the podcast, thank you for your support and welcome back. If you're new to the podcast, I speak with top creators and entrepreneurs as we discuss business, creativity, mental health, and how those may interconnect with each other. We never think about how living in autopilot can affect our path in life, our personal and professional goals, our health, and even our relationships. Mental health often takes a backseat in our lives, but it's about time we prioritize it as we should. Today's interview is a special one for me, as I will have the opportunity to speak with a fellow meditator and learn more about his journey through mindfulness. My guest today is Brian Simmons, a former award-winning writer, producer for Comedy Central, and currently the Dean of Students in New York City, where he has pioneered the use of mindfulness in diverse educational environments from high school to college. He is also in the Teachers' Council of New York Inside Meditation Center, and you may also know him from the 10% Happier app, where he shares several talks. He completed his teacher training at the Center for Mindfulness at UMass Medical College, as well as the Community Dharma Leaders Program at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. If you are enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would follow, subscribe, share it with a friend, and maybe even leave a rating and a review. It would mean the world to me. Now, my interview with Brian. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, Marit. It's great to be here. So I, we were talking a little bit before starting the podcast, but just for the sake of the listeners, I want to unpack a bit more about uh, your journey, how you became interested in meditation, what it, what it means for you, um, anything that, that you want to share. Well, that is a huge, huge question. Um, and what I've noticed is that the the, the biggest lesson or one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that why you meditate is as important and more important than how you meditate. And in my 22 plus years of meditating on a daily basis, why I do it has dramatically changed. Probably on a yearly basis, it changes. When I first began meditating uh, in the 90s, um, you know, I had had, uh, you know, anxiety attacks, panic attacks after I graduated college for a couple of years. And I really was searching for something to stop them. And along the way, mindfulness is not what ultimately cured it. Uh, but I found something called mindfulness, which was not as popular as it is now. And I kind of read about it and never really practiced it till a couple of years later, I ended up uh, getting a career in network television, being a writer producer for Comedy Central. And I had no training for this. And I was thrown into this kind of stressful, exciting um, career. And I leaned on the one thing that I believe might give me creativity, which was a mindfulness meditation practice. And I have not looked back for decades. So it's it's been... Um, the North Star for my life, really, for for many, many, many years. Yeah. And I meditate as well. I've been probably doing it for, I want to say four years, but it's become a daily practice um, probably a year and a half ago where I was consistently making into a habit 
where I either do it uh, really early in the morning or I do it at the morning and I do it at night. And it's usually 10 to 15 minutes like it always. And, and I'm to the point where if I do not do it, I can feel the effects of not having taken that break and sitting in the cushion and just meditating. And it works wonders for me. Like, you know, I, I have a short fuse. Um, when I was younger, I, I would kind of like self-medicate with like drinking and just adrenaline packed adventures, packing my, my weekend, she's doing the stupidest thing. So <laughs> with meditation, it, it's been able to help and, and other things that I've implemented in my life too. I'm actually writing a book called The Journey to Stillness and Ex-Adrenaline uh, Seekers Path to Resiliency. Um, and it's because I feel like there's a lot of people who might be in the same path. Um, you had mentioned that you were working for Comedy Central and that it's a very intense, I feel like, and, and anxiety and just, I think like you have to go 100 miles per hour probably in that, in that position that you were in. Or is there a point in time where you were like, I'm going to maybe steer away from that job and go maybe into being more of a mindfulness teacher, more into this other path? Like, how did that look like? Well, ultimately, that is what happened, but it was not as uh, definitive and precise as me saying, let me become a meditation teacher. In fact, that was not my ambition at all. Sometimes life takes over. And this is really one of the profound benefits of a mindfulness practice is that when you're centered and you're in the present moment, you can kind of see the tea leaves. And when life changes, which it will for everybody, you're able to be, a, a, you can adapt in a way that's nimble. So that's exactly what happened to me after uh, almost a decade of a, a career, a very successful career in network television where I won multiple awards, uh, went to different networks. It was really like a dream come true. I suddenly fell sick. Um, I got ill um, and it lasted for many years without a clear diagnosis. And under the heavy urging of physicians, they said, you need to find perhaps a, a career where you're pushing yourself less. Um, and I had the brilliant idea to think that if I became a New York City public school teacher, I might have less stress. How do you think that worked out? <laughs> At least I had my wise. summers off so I could go on meditation <laughs> retreats. Um, but I still did not think that I would be a mindfulness teacher. However, years into that career, when I could see how much stress was in public education, and specifically the kids, I mean, these were all inner city kids that I was teaching. I could see the standardized testing, uh, an insane amount of politics weighing down, right down onto the kids and certainly the teachers scrambling uh, to meet these needs. Uh, it occurred to me that kind of everybody needed something. Um, and I didn't know what that something was. And it turns out that that thing was literally and figuratively right beneath my nose. And what I did was I began, I created um, a mindfulness class for, for high school kids. I called it Mindful Fitness. And uh, it's been profiled in different documentaries and stuff. And uh, what it did was it really dramatically changed these kids' lives. Um, we, you know, I had a school psychologist to measure them before and after, and really to get hard data to show that their anxiety levels dropped their ability to focus attention increased. And from that point forward, it really, it, it changed my whole understanding of, of education. So I went knee deep into it and I began, uh, you know, 
training the kids. Uh, later, I became the dean of the school in charge of discipline for New York City High School, which is also a kind of a, a stressful gig. Took it all from a, a mindfulness point of view. So I began teaching mindfulness in the, the public education setting. And outside of that, my own, you know, retreat practice and intense daily mindfulness practice, I began teaching uh, mindfulness to adults in, in Dharma centers and mindfulness centers. So it's a funny thing because when you practice in this way and you kind of yield to life, it will take you in strange ways. So I never set out to become a meditation teacher, but it kind of, it, it shows me, I think. I promise I have a good reason for the quick interruption. I have a two quick reminders for you today. Who doesn't like free resources and tools? Well, let me share a few with you now. If you visit maritaspara.com and scroll down to my work, you can gain access to templates, the Mindful Minute monthly newsletter, and so much more. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is a platform where you can learn anything from photography, creativity strategies, or design. It's a place to go and leverage an existing skill or learn a new one. With my link, you get two premium months free. All the links mentioned are in the description of the episode. With that said, back to the show. Yeah. And this is a beautiful thing because I think I told you, but I learned about you from the 10% Happier app. There was a talk that you did, probably it was like 10 minutes or so, where you were explaining what you had done with, with the kids of, of this particular school in, in New York. And it, it really made me think, are we doing enough as, as adults, as a society to help younger generations maybe embrace this? Because I think there's, I don't know if you heard it, but I, I've heard it from some people that are that say, well, meditation doesn't work for me. And for me, that's really hard to really agree with it because maybe not the whole idea of meditation and maybe not one particular one. Maybe it's really hard for people. And I've heard this a lot. And maybe even for me, when I first started, really hard for people to do like meta because kind of loving kindness and, and giving loving kindness to yourself and others. And I think a lot of people are like, oh no, that's too corny. I don't want to do that. So they struggle with that one. But maybe there's another type of meditation that you can do that you really find something that helps you. So for me, it's hard to, to see how it might not help a particular person. I think anyone can find benefit from it. Well, as you correctly point out, there are many different kinds of meditation. And, you know, as you say, loving kindness is one kind of meditation, which has profound effects, but there can be an aversion to it. I had an aversion to it for many years because it kind of feels a little forced and a little sentimental. And I'm going to be sending out good wishes to myself and the world. And it felt very cheesy and kind of nauseated me a little bit at first. <laughs> yeah. After after many, many years, now that I see the benefits, I'm like, oh, it, it actually works. But yeah, you kind of have to know your audience and, and that may not be right for each individual at, at each point in time. But if I had someone in front of me here right now and they said what you said, it doesn't work for me. I would really, really be curious about well, what would it look like if it did work? What do you think it should be doing? What is your conception of mindfulness and what's possible? And what often happens when I go through this inquiry with students, sometimes elderly students, what you find is that there's 
many layers of expectation that kind of society has about it. There are these kind of cartoonish notions of floating on a mountaintop and you're never going to be upset again. It's like, give me a break. That's not life. Forget about life in 2021. Forget about life in any year. That's just not how life rolls. Life is a full contact sport. It's challenging. It will test you physically, mentally, emotionally. Yes, every one of us will die at some point. These are facts on the ground. And no one just has an easy path through all of that. Mindfulness is not for that. But what mindfulness has to offer is a way to relate to the changing nature of life in a way that is more centered, wise, and balanced. And if you can see life as it happens clearly, that is a huge, huge advantage right there. Yeah. And a lot of beginners that start meditating, I think you probably heard this too. A lot of them think that they're going to see the changes of meditation while they're like meditating, like there's going to be like this light or something that shows up or something in particular where they have their eyes closed or maybe they're like, you know, slowly like lacing down to the floor or or their eyes open or however they're meditating. And it's in the in the day to day. And for me, I've seen been trying to do more meta because I, I, I've been struggling too with like, oh, this is so corny. Like, I like, let me see if I <laughs> embrace it in another way. What do I do? And I've noticed that my empathy has really gone up to a point where I'm like, oh my God, like I can feel it. I had a, a friend who lost her dog this week to do to terminal cancer. And mm. the dog was like four years old. She didn't get to spend too much time with him. And I've been feeling it. Like I've been thinking a lot about her and I've been feeling it. Because I, love, I love my dog, like my own kid. And, and she felt that way with her dog. And, and I feel for her. And I was like, I don't know if at another point in time, maybe a year or two ago, I would have felt this amount of empathy for what she's going through. It's hard to know, but it it is valuable to reflect on those changes because you said that you've been practicing for four years. I really wish that in the early days I had journaled about the changes that I was noticing in my life because it's so absent to me at this point. It's so part of my life. I, I don't know what it was like. However, I do have a memory, and this was when I was at Comedy Central and I was practicing maybe for a month or two months. And I remember like walking down the hallway of Comedy Central and it occurring to me, it's two o'clock on Tuesday. Like, I think prior to that, my life was a blur. Everything blended into each other and I was just going and going and going and going, but I could identify that moment and it stood out to me and I'm like, wow, it felt like profound to see that. And I'm so, yeah, there are what look like small changes that can be very profound changes and to get caught up in this expectation candy of, yeah, I, I heard about this guy who had lights and saw this and had this really hallucinatory experience. That's all, I'm not going to curse on your podcast, although um, (laughs) that's unnecessary. Let's put it that way. What is necessary is to look squarely at what is happening. When you feel like crap, 
when your body feels like crap and you look directly at it, you can breathe with it, you can move forward anyway, and you know what's happening in the mind. These thoughts are coming up in the mind, right? You're telling me things. I don't have to believe them. This is more profound than seeing lights or levitating or anything as you could imagine. What good is that in real life? But to be able to know what's happening, this is huge. Like these small things that look like they're, they're small. Well, if you have a ship and you change the trajectory by one degree, it's going to take you to the other side of the planet. That's yep. kind of the gains you're looking at for mindfulness. Yeah. And it's funny that you said that that one time in Comedy Central when you were looking, you're like, it's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. That happened to me because the way that, I, that I'm doing you know, I've been meditating for a while, but keeping it as a habit, I have my cushions and I have a little like a candle and my symbols, but I have a little notebook too. And when there's things that I want to keep in mind after my meditation, not during, but after I'll journal about it so that I see progress as well um, in what I'm doing rather than just noticing on my own. But one day, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I have no sense of time lately. I, I was driving and I'm like, I am never going to be as young as I am today. And out of nowhere. And I'm like, where did this even come from? That's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to be as young as I uh, today. But that has been motivating me to be like, well, if, if there's something that I want to do with my life, then I really have to do it. And I don't know why. I never Those thoughts would never cross my mind until like lately it's been okay. more apparent. <laughs> so I was on a, a, a meditation retreat for about three weeks, this is prior to COVID. This is like summer of 2018 or something. And then in the last seven days, teachers that, two of my teachers that I know that you know, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters, who I practiced with in, in Maui where they live and they're just incredible. I was on a retreat with them and we were practicing this particular technique. It's called the Mahasi technique. Uh, without going into it, uh, the long and short of it is whatever sensations, thoughts, whatever phenomena is arising in the moment, you're kind of labeling it and you're saying, okay, itching, shifting, rising and falling of the breathing. You're kind of identifying these things and, and it can really take you to a very concentrated place. And it was maybe the, fi it was the final day of, I think, a three or four week retreat. And the insight as I was sitting there, I mean, it was an hour before the thing finished and it occurred to me, huh, this awareness that's aware of the pain in the knee or the thought or the sensations of the breath coming in and, in and out, that awareness is effervescent. It has no age. It's timeless. And the more I identify with the awareness as opposed to the body, my awareness, my, the, I, I'm living in timelessness. And what occurred to me was if I'm practicing in this way and I'm 92 years old in a nursing home with a failing body, in a wheelchair, in pain, I will be young, timeless, effervescent because the awareness doesn't age. Now, people might be listening to this and be like, okay, woo woo, whatever, you <laughs> lost me on that. And I'm not here to convince anyone of anything. This was an insight that shifted my whole perception of time and age and, and, and what's possible. Yeah, and they're beautiful people. I did a similar one, well, now we're in COVID, 
but I did a similar one that they have that they were doing online. Cause what I'm trying to do now, if I want to do a retreat, because we can't really just like meet all together, they're doing them online, but I'm trying to get like an Airbnb just to like have a new place and keep the flow and just be away from my family so that I can actually concentrate on doing the retreat and, and follow the, the process of like, I don't want to have cable or, or like my TV or any of those distractions. It's just me doing the retreat. Um, and I did one with them. It's, I think it's the same one, but a shorter version of it because I think it was only a weekend. Um, and it was great. And I, I think Kamala has said something at one point where she was um, explaining a bit more about mindfulness and noting. And she was like, in the moment, we're, we're always right here. So we make space for it. And I've always like, oh my God, like it's, it seems so simple, but at the same time, it is so powerful what she said yeah. that every time that I feel overwhelmed, I'm like, you know, it's kind of like this right now. I'm going to make space for it. This is not going to be permanent. Yeah. This idea of time is necessary. This is what keeps us on schedules and functioning at jobs. And we need this but it also can wreak havoc on our mind because we're constantly chasing a deadline, which in the relative sense is true. Of course, there's time. That's why we have clocks. We have to cap in calendars and we have to plan vacations and all this. But from a more fundamental, absolute point of view, there is no time. There's just here and now. So if you can kind of work with both of this absolute and the relative, you can honor the relative nature of time. I, you and I met at a certain time today to do this. Um, I'll set an alarm clock tonight or hopefully I will not have to, but I, we need to do these things. And while I'm following the schedule or not following the schedule, can I just be here with this moment and allow myself to fully be present with feeling my bottom touching the seat that I'm sitting on right now, feeling my fingers, feeling the, the air coming in and out as I'm breathing right now, even for people who are listening to this right now, see if you can do it. As you continue to listen, can you be where you are? And can you be free of time in that way? And just give yourself the gift of just presence right here, right now. And that, that is really good advice. And Making just a note, I have a lot of listeners that are creatives and some entrepreneurs that are trying to hustle and do the their job and trying to you know, put food in the table and, and do everything that they need to do simultaneously. Um, for someone that might tell you that they're too busy, like this people, like creators and entrepreneurs, they're busy. I have my schedule is packed, but meditation can really impact their lives. What what advice would you give them? There's so much out there, but I'm curious what what you would say. I've even addressed this before myself. You know, I said earlier that, you know, I won awards at Comedy Central. Three of them in particular were ideas, were campaigns, um, where I wrote and produced an on-air campaign um, for Comedy Central. And the idea the that ultimately won the award came to me during meditation in three examples. It was not in a moment where I was like, I have a deadline. Uh, this has to be good. It's got to be great. It, uh, all of this. I was just sitting for my normal meditation 
And the mind is very, very intelligent. It processes things at levels that we can't even comprehend. And my intention was not to kind of like abuse my meditation practice to give me a creative idea. I wasn't even thinking in those terms. Let me sit half hour meditation and like, bang, all this creative idea, Eureka, just right in front of me, like someone handed me the secret to the universe. Entrepreneurs, creative people know this. You would not be a creative if you did not understand the power of presence. What meditation and mindfulness is doing is cultivating it in a strategic kind of way rather than hoping it just arises. This is a way to develop it. And if you go back to these wisdom traditions, you know, 2,600 years, there's a lot to be said about how you can purposely build this. So it's not an accident. So it's not I'm busy versus my mindfulness practice. Rather, how can I be mindful as I create, as I'm an entrepreneur? Because it's not just about sitting on a cushion. It's about changing how you live walking down the street can you feel your feet touching the ground driving can you feel your hands on the steering wheel or do you just want to magically appear at your destination and kind of forget how you got there which is usually how most people kind of roll through life this is about weaving in awareness into our day-to-day it's not about becoming great meditators it's not even about going on retreats it's about living more consciously and purposely mindfulness can help us do that. Yeah. And I like how you explain it because I think a lot of people see meditation and hear about meditation and they think it's like this, like mystical thing. And again, with the colors and this, and, and maybe like the energy and they don't understand that it is much more than that. And I, I try to explain it to people um, thinking about a particular meditation teacher. And I hope I'm getting his last name, correct. Uh, George Mumford. He yeah. used to he used to teach meditation, or I think he still does. He's very focused on meditation specifically to help your performance, specifically for um, sports. And he worked with Kobe Bryant, with Michael Jordan, uh, Phil Jackson, and he helped them to m- embrace meditation. And by that, you can see they won multiple championships. And he's like, they would they would meditate, and he made it very simple and showed them with meditation, we can find ways to improve your performance. And they embraced it because these are players that, you know, want their performance to be top notch. And so and it not, works not only, different for everyone. Not only did they want their performance to be top notch, but they inherently understood it. George Mumford probably found the correct language to reach a Kobe Bryant or a Michael Jordan. But those kind of superior athletes Anybody who's an artist, who's a dancer, who's a musician, an actor, an athlete, they understand this intuitively. There are pictures of Michael Jordan, go to Google, where you see Jordan Duncan dunking the ball with his tongue out, and he looks like a Zen monk. He is in that moment. I mean, I played sports as a kid. When, when you really have these, like, moments of high performance time slows down it does what we said earlier time disappears there is no time there's me and the ball or the net and life becomes very very simple 
So what, you know, what a good meditation teacher does is find a way to unpack all of this extra that you're talking about, these expectations that are cartoonish, they're not accurate, and really get to the source. So reaching these superior athletes, they know this. You just have to find the, the right way to speak to them. Yeah, that's right. And something very simple, too, is um, that I explain. We talked a little bit about this before starting the podcast, but um, I consider myself a meditation coach and rather than a meditation teacher because I don't really have years of experience. And so I can lead meditations, but, you know, I don't have the wisdom and, and, and the experience that these people do. But I do share with people when they're like, I don't know how to make it a habit. I don't know how to get it started. I'm too busy. I'm too this. And I'm like, for me, I have two, two ways of doing it. Like I have my cushions and everything in one corner. I have a lamp that's very dim, very light. And it's, it, it's very welcoming for me to be like, I really need to go to my space and meditate today. And if I'm busy, then I do like the three simple breath meditation, which I can do it in the car. I can do it while I'm walking, just with my eyes open. So I pay attention. And so there's different ways. It's just understanding how big of a difference this might make in your day to day and seeing today, how does my schedule look like? But where am I going to fit that meditation? Is it going to be in my corner where I feel welcome and I'm going to do 15 minutes or is it going to be the quick three breaths? So like, it, how do I, how do I manage that through my day to day, but embracing it and using it is at least for me, it's very important. Well, there are two things to that one I've personally noticed in myself and many others that the more people do this, the more they tend to find the motivation in of themselves. Like years ago, if you had said, okay, well, you know, you're going to go on a meditation retreat for five out five weeks with your eyes closed, not talking to you. I would say who, it must be someone who doesn't have a life. The only way you'll find the motivation to do something like that is if you know the benefits. And most people, when they practice, they begin to see over time, oh, this is good. In fact, one of my uh, a meditation teacher who had an impact when, when I was becoming a teacher, Eugene Cash was his name. And he, he's still a meditation teacher on the West Coast in Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And he had a horrific bicycle accident where he was, he almost died. He had severe brain trauma. Um, they didn't know if he would have a normal life again. And it took him years and years of recovery. And he shared that when he came out of the hospital after months and he went home, he saw his meditation cushion in the corner, didn't know what it was but instinctively walked up to it, sat on it, had no idea how to meditate or what it was for, but there was the thought in his head, this is good. When your brain begins to practice this, it will begin to realize over time, this is good. And your brain will find ways to come up with the time to do it. In the beginning, it can be difficult because you're just seeing the pain. And there is a lot of pain in meditation. You sit there, your knee falls asleep, your foot's on fire, your brain is screaming at you. It can be very challenging. So we have to kind of find ways to just get through it at certain points. But over time, we begin to see its value. That's formal meditation, right? When we're sitting down on a cushion. But again, what's really, really important, critical is the informal meditation. So on the days where you don't have time to go to the corner of your room and schedule it in, it's not a catastrophe, right? 
you can still, while we're talking right now, I'm meditating now. Do I look like the guy who's meditating? No, not at all. <laughs> right? I'm not sitting there in, in, the, in the stereotype of like a meditator. My eyes aren't closed, all of this, but I'm feeling the contact points of my body. I'm hearing the words, I'm seeing the visuals and I'm present with, with, with these arisings. That's meditation. The, the key is to live our lives like that. Moment to moment, like right now, wherever you are right now, what does it feel like? What's the temperature? What's the temperature in your left foot? Is it warmer or cooler than your right foot? All right. What's this? What's the attitude of the mind right now? Is it agitated, pressured, relaxed, ambivalent? Checking in with these things galvanizes awareness. It pulls us into the present moment. So over time, what we're doing is we're doing these strategic little check-ins that have the effect of putting our attention back in the body. Yeah. And I think you know, I was thinking about this the other day, but I think when we're little and we're growing up, we, you know, we're taught Monday through Friday, you go to school and then the weekends is to have fun. And that just keeps with you as you become a teenager, a young adult. And so we live in autopilot waiting for that Friday at 5 p.m. to then enjoy two days to then go back to five days of routine and maybe being upset because you don't like your nine to five or whatever it is, or maybe you're having problems with your family or a friend or whatever. So you're looking for that escape over the weekend. And it's like, we, we need to somehow kind of like reverse engineer maybe that, that, that mindset and not keep thinking that way. And just keeping in, in the moment, like that Sunday night when people are like, Oh, tomorrow's tomorrow's Monday. So you, you, you don't enjoy your Sunday dinner. You don't enjoy what you're doing Sunday night because you're thinking about tomorrow. Yeah. And it's like, we, that's exactly what we're doing is we're reverse engineering our conditioning. We're deconditioning and reconditioning. So like years and years ago, I used to have this, thought, well, are we, are we trying to become like a, like a two-year-old again or an infant? Cause an infant or two-year-old has no concept of time. They're just in the now constant. So are we trying to become a two-year-old? But that's not exactly right because a two-year-old or an infant is completely overtaken by their emotions. They're completely thrown sideways, left and right. So we don't want to aspire to that. So what we need is really, again, like I was saying earlier, this balance between the absolute view and the relative view. The relative view is I have a job, I have a mortgage. Right. I can't just bliss out and I'm going to sit there and follow my own nose and nothing matters. Michael Jordan couldn't have done that. You know, he wouldn't have won championships, all of this. There are things to be done. So mm -hmm. we need to honor that. But how are we doing them? Yeah. Can, is it possible to be fully engaged, fully intimate with our activities as we're doing it, as we're doing them? So that's how we kind of reverse engineer we have the presence the timelessness of the three-year-old but we have the wisdom of an of a fully cooked adult yeah and I, I could have said that better myself and i really enjoy this conversation it's it's been fascinating i really like to to speak with people that are like-minded at, at least in in this particular thing we can share so many things and your journey and my journey and advice that we can give people i, I really enjoy it but um, before we wrap up, I like to ask two fun questions to my guests. And 
and I would love to ask you and, and give me your, your answers. Um, the first one is if, if you could have dinner with anyone from history, who would it be and why? Well, before I answer that one, I just want to point out in case sure. anyone's itching to hear at the school where I did this work at in, in New York City was food and finance high school. Just want to put that out there. But to answer your question, it's a tough one because I, I'm kind of <laughs> caught between Jesus and Buddha. But based on the nature of this conversation, I'm going to go with Buddha because Buddha was the prince of re-engineering re-engineering what the mind is capable of, re-engineering how we engage with our notions of ourselves, others, and really tapping like human potential in a way that I don't see any other parallel. I know a few years back, there was a movie with Bradley Cooper, Limitless. When I see the Buddha, I'm like, that's real Limitless. Like a mind that has no boundaries, has exceeded that. Living this relative and absolute at a level that I can't even fathom. I would love to sit across from that table and just bathe in that experience. So I'm going with, with Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Lovely, lovely. And I, and I like that movie too. They try to do a show or a spinoff or something, but it did not come out as nice as that first movie. So it had limits. Yeah, and that one had limits. Uh, the other question is, what show, documentary, uh, or book have you watched or read lately that you would uh, recommend to folks? I just finished a book by a Navy SEAL named David Goggins. And the name of it is called Can't Hurt Me. I mean, it's been out for a few years, so people might have read this. And it was phenomenal. If you're familiar with this, this man's work, he pushed his physical body to unbelievable extremes. And what he reveals along the way, he doesn't appear to be a meditator or anything like that, but he kind of is without knowing it because he pushed his body in order to test his mind. And what he found was on the other end of suffering, he found freedom. It almost sounds like he's talking in classical Buddhist type language, but it, that's mm -hmm. not his intent. So he uses this militaristic type language and he says that your, your mind has a tactical advantage over you. And you have to basically run a counterinsurgency against the tactical advantage your mind has on you. And I'm like, man, he's right. That's exactly what like, mindfulness is what these ancient buddhists were telling us that the mind has capacities for like greed hatred mm -hmm. ignorance delusion and it really has a tactical advantage over us and to go back to the last question <laughs> buddhism buddha or even if you're not into buddhism or any kind of religion just mindfulness itself is finding a way to reverse engineer the tactical advantage over the mind which sounds kind of clunky, but let's just simplify to what we were talking about before. My mind is chewed up. What am I going to do? Am I going to lose my job? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Yeah. What, all of these things are, could happen. I'm not saying that they're unrealistic and that we shouldn't realistically look at them. But when they dominate our mental stream, can we be in this moment? Can I feel myself sitting here? Can I take a breath? And can I regain the tactical advantage? Yeah, 
And I haven't read the book. It's in my in my list to read, but I have watched videos of him. And I, I know part a little bit of his story because of the those videos. And I know that he was he was overweight and then he like pushed his body to like another level and got yeah. really fit. And it was it's even seeing the pictures is just mind blowing. It looks like a completely different person. And it must have taken a lot of effort just mentally to get from like, you know, A to B. And so I'm very interested in reading that book. Um, so for other folks that are interested, add it to your list too. So, um, and before we end, I do like to give my guests the space to share uh, social media, websites, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, I, I have a website. It's uh, brian-simmons.org. Um, I am a teacher on the 10% Happier uh, meditation app, as you mentioned. Um, I have some talks there. And I'm also a teacher on the teaching council at New York Insight Meditation Center um, in Manhattan, when these days we have many offerings online. Uh, so there's lots and lots of good, good courses there to take. Beautiful. Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marita. When I launched the podcast, it was primarily about business and creative ventures. But as time passed, I realized that the balance between those ventures and mental health is not something that we talk about often. It's a bit taboo, but it shouldn't. It makes the difference between performing better and living a balanced and healthy lifestyle. We ask top entrepreneurs what their workout routine to keep their body sharp is, but we don't ask how they keep up with their mental health and how they keep their mind sharp. Don't get me wrong, it's proven scientifically that working out does help our mind as well, but we need to do more. Stress, depression, anxiety among adults is rising every year, so we need to do better for ourselves and for our society. I hope this episode helps you in finding ways to do that. But for now, peace out and see you next time.